Welcome to the Recapery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Today, we are going to continue with our coverage of Netflix's The Crown, covering the life of Queen Elizabeth II of England. This is Season 2, Episode 3, entitled Lisbon. The Netflix synopsis says this. Palace insiders try to prevent a scandal that could reflect poorly on Philip. Eden faces censure from his cabinet and the press. That's it. Two sentences. Let's <laughs> start writing replacement ones. I'll do that <gasps> for the next episode. That's a great idea. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. So we open on a tiny little flintel of a clock. But in fact, as the picture appears, we're looking at Queen Elizabeth through, curiously, taxidermied hummingbirds. <laughs> Elizabeth is with little Anne and Charles in their elaborate nursery, and she is giving them a little geography lesson. It's kind of a stupid question, Olympics, as far as I'm concerned, because she's saying, now, Anne, what's this? And she's holding up a stuffed penguin, quite possibly the most costly stuffed penguin in the history of stuffed penguins. I think it's life size. But Anne, you know, geez, she's so brilliant. She's like, it's a penguin. And then there's Stupid question number two. And she turns to Charles and she says, and Charles, who's surrounded by penguins at the moment? And he says, Daddy, like, if this is how hard their schooling is, what the heck? Uh, it's not schooling, I don't think. I think it is just the children's hour. You know, that one mm -hmm. hour in an upper class British child's life where they might see their parent in a medium formal setting. It's not like she's tousling their hair and making jokes and this and that. It's very stilted conversation. And I think that reflects a very stilted relationship. They're in this gilded nursery. It's the most fancy nursery in the history of nurseries. I guess that's the theme of the show, right? The right. most something of something. Um, the only reason you know it's a nursery is there's all these toys around the perimeter. And they're not even like messy, but then they're very expensive looking, like the most gorgeous rocking horse in the history of rocking horses. Well, it's just some repurposed, you know, reception room, I think. And <laughs> I am just like, I know these people aren't playing with moon sand in there because regular old moms have a heart attack with the moon sand and carpet. And I hate to think when it's like an Obasan carpet. I guess you have people for that. Who cares? Yeah, there's enough of them sitting around. There's two nannies standing by while she's doing this. Next thing that Elizabeth does is she goes to this very large globe that she has and she's kind of spinning it. And she's pointing out to the kids where dad's traveling, which is kind of a cool thing, right? It she's is kind of a cool thing, except for the fact that just last episode, nobody knew where Antarctica was. And now we can find tiny, obscure islands in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> Well, maybe that's a indication of progress. Like she knows what she needs to learn. So, well, I don't know. Like, who do you think she asked? Or do you think she summoned the globe into her office and sat there with her tongue sticking out the side and one finger looking, looking, looking? Ascension Island. Ascension Island. Good luck finding it. It is the most obscure thing ever. Luckily, I had the Google box, but she does not. No. And she points to um, Shetland Island the Falklands, and like you just said, Ascension Island, and points them out. And she says, now these are all British overseas territories, and they have to be visited so they don't feel neglected or forgotten or have silly ideas about becoming independent. Like, who's she directing this to? The nannies don't care, and the children are really small. And also, I think, speaking of children, listen to this sentence again and think that she's talking about her own children. They have to be visited once in a while so they don't feel neglected or forgotten. 
Oh, Beckett Graham. Mm -hmm. That is impressive. That's very good. And I, I think that's hysterical, but I'm sure she was doing it as like king training for Charles, right? Because I don't think she felt that she had a good enough training for her job. It didn't start early enough because when she was that age, she didn't realize she was going to step into the shoes. So that's what I thought it was. I thought it was king training. I don't even think it's king training. I think it's just like, I don't know how to talk to children. <laughs> also, um, we, the audience, have to be illuminated as to her and honestly, British people's attitude toward the colonial people. I mean, just like... Um, we don't want them to get any silly ideas like becoming independent. Who are you? Oh, my gosh. They, they just feel so entitled to not only the colony's land and resources, but to the people's loyalty. For some bizarro reason, they feel completely superior. And the queen is obviously still feeling that. And all three of those things are part still of the United Kingdom. Although the Shetland Islands are part of Scotland. <laughs> So who knows how much longer they're going to be a part of anything. But um, yeah, the other ones are still, still to this day, part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, and later in her life in the 1980s, she'll be fully aware of where the Falkland Islands are because there's a little war that breaks out and her son was actually over there, Prince Andrew. Yeah, they had a conflict with Argentina. I think Argentina invaded and then Britain felt they needed to defend, which they should because that's their job, right? I mean, as the boss of the island, shouldn't they be in charge of taking care of it, I suppose? Well, I just have to say, if the people of the Falkland Islands still enjoy that, then more power to them. But if they don't, come on. How about having a silly idea about becoming independent? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, the little kids are in their PJs and their robes. It's right before bedtime. And they go so meekly that I hope, hope, hope they give their nannies all that. You know, little kids going to bed like one more page, five more minutes, one more chapter. Don't turn the light out. I hope they are proper children with their nannies because they sure are meek and mild with their own mama. They sure are. And she's just like night, night. Now, I had a problem because it was still very bright outside. Were they just going in for like their chill hours or to have dinner, I guess, maybe in the nursery? They were in the nursery. So the nursery annex? Well, I just don't know. All I can think of is maybe f it's between 4.30 and 5.30. I don't know. I'm trying to think in the winter slash very, very early spring. It's still pretty dark, pretty early at that latitude. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But mom has a great idea. She says to the nannies, put a picture of the Duke next to their beds so that they'll remember what he looks like. Five months is a long time at that age. <laughs> or at any age, apparently, because she has a crazy look on her face. <laughs> like they're going to forget what their dad looks like. Okay. So Elizabeth is alone for 30 seconds. That's probably a pretty rare scenario. She's alone and in comes a butler with some film. They have arrived from the Duke of Edinburgh, souvenirs of his journey. And she's very excited about this. She thinks, oh, let's watch that instead of our next film. I guess they have like a Netflix night, right? And they watch movies. Well, they can't so really go to the cinema. No, no, I guess they couldn't. So the cinema comes to them. I think the president does that too, right? Well, and the Tsar of Russia used to do that in the way back days. Well, they were into photography too. They were <sighs> like such nerds, in fact, that Kodak had to put a depot for development like right near the palace. <laughs> uh, anyway, in the basement, Michael A. Dean opens a letter that, much to his sadness, announces to him that the Parker divorce proceedings are going to commence. Yeah, you see it says, 
I'm writing to give you a notice of intention to begin a divorce proceeding for Lieutenant Commander Mike Parker. It's a courtesy letter from Eileen's lawyer, um, because even the lawyer knows the impact that this divorce, even just the filing of it, is going to have on the royal family. And Dean looks so concerned. There's like a heavy sigh on his face. Well, he wants to say a bad word, and I think he cannot. I think he's repressed, so he just takes off his glasses. (laughs) And so Tommy Lassell, ostensibly at his house, is cleaning a gun and gets a phone call. He answers the phone. Kensington 3742. And all we hear is Michael Adine going, Tommy, it's all we need. (laughs) is supposed to be retired and everyone keeps calling him in like the one employee that knows how to run the system. I think it's great that he's keeping so busy that his guns are so clean. I mean, this is a big rifle with like a huge sight on it and everything. And he's got the official I'm polishing something. uh, I don't even know what you call it, like a cover on his arms so his sleeve doesn't get dirty. They are called, among other things, buckhalters, which means accountant. And I guess that poor clerks, as they say, used to wear those to keep their sleeves from becoming covered in ink because they could not afford too many replacement shirts, also called baker's stockings or sleeve stockings. Hmm. Okay. And that brings us to the opening credits. So that was the cold open. All right. Anthony Eden and his wife are anxiously awaiting exiting their plane. This scene actually starts with Mr. Eden trimming his mustache. And I do believe they both know they're about to face the press and nobody's that happy about it. He's back from Jamaica. So this is about a month or two after episode two's action. Yeah, she's kind of looking out the window very nervously while he is in the restroom. And she's looking at the crowd. I guess it's gathering, although we don't see that. The really weird thing is when he started the position not that very long ago, he had a 70% approval rating, which just plummeted into the 40s after the Suez crisis. And that's when he took off to go rest and recuperate and detox. And hide. (laughs) So they come down the stairway to just how you imagine the press is waiting to talk to them, not waiting like politely, but they're shrieking and screaming and blah 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 and anthony eden gives a little speech and it's kind of the same little speech he gave when he came back from his botched uh surgery that made him so ill and dependent on pain medication in the first place and he says it's wonderful to be back amongst you uh we went away to concentrate on my health and now i'm fully fit to resume my duties so that's three big fat lies in less than 20 seconds and his (laughs) pants did not even catch fire so i don't know what kind of circus they're running but his arms could not be more fully crossed if he had been told by the director to hug himself (laughs) he is uncomfortable mrs eden has been full of dread, I think, since the plane took off from Jamaica. I don't. I doubt she's eaten anything. She looks sick. <laughs> Incidentally, Mrs. Eden was the niece of Winston Churchill. So that's pretty tough. Her grandma was Jenny Jerome from right. episode 10. She's Eden's second wife, and they really haven't been married very long. She married him shortly before he became prime minister. And um, she hasn't a lot of time on the job, although... You know, like you just pointed out, she grew up in a family that was the job. Oh, and just as a side note, since I was wondering what those initials were on the stairway, B-O-A-C, I was trying to construct 
all kinds of explanations for that acronym. It's nothing more than British Overseas Airways Corporation, which until the 70s was a entirely separate airline. And it was the one that had the route to Jamaica, among other places. So <laughs> I think we've seen this plane before. Yeah, I'm sure it was exactly the same plane. <laughs> well, I don't know how many planes. I don't know. They have a pretty high budget. Maybe they have a plane for every occasion. But yeah. So it's movie night in the palace and the gang are watching Daddy's Adventures. Now, this whole scene is intercut with Philip at his desk in the Britannia writing the commentary that we hear Elizabeth reading. So we see Philip occasionally, but mostly it is a scene about the movie night. Elizabeth is standing at the front of the room with a piece of paper, the letter that he's writing, and she says she's going to read it while everybody else is sitting in their seats. Now, it's not just the Queen Mom and Margaret and the kids. There's other people in the room. Uh, there's a little family, like a son who's a teenager and a mother and a d dad, I guess, and then a couple. There's sofas that are also filled up with, you know, people who obviously were close to the family, but they have no names. <laughs> and in the back of the room, there's three members of the red-coated Footman AV Club to run the machine. I think that's because, you know, footmen are going to be younger than butlers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you had to get the footman to run the machine. <laughs> the uh, red-coated footman also made sure that everybody's got a beverage. The queen mom has her glass of pink and Margaret has her glass of brown. <laughs> Well, that's their main job, but they're probably more excited to run the machines. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Tech. Yay. <laughs> I always love how affectionate Margaret is. Yeah, except for she's smoking right in the child's face. Well, it's 57, so. <laughs> well, I have to say Queen Elizabeth is an awkward narrator. And she starts out saying hello to you all. And the room screams hello, which I'm spelling H-E-L-L-E-A-U. They also say the word Diddy. <laughs> <laughs> Three Capri, where Susan and Beckett make fun of the British royal language. <laughs> I am just cracking up. But uh, okay, so how about this? Look at Charles. All of you freeze frame on Charles with his stuffed penguin, with his face. I mean, he could not be cuter. Freeze frame on him. Absorb him. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Now back to Philip for a second. I do love Philip's smile while he's writing. And it looks to me like, you know, when you're wrapping a present, you just know, since it's just been the holiday season, you just know the guy that's getting this present is going to love this. It's the smile you have while you're wrapping that thing. And that's exactly the look he has on his face. Now, Anne sees the beard as film Philip appears and says, literally says, is that daddy? <laughs> So it was a good instinct in putting a photo of him by her bed, but maybe you should cut up a fox fur coat and hot glue a beard on that photo's face. <laughs> yeah, hot glue it because then it would really look like Matt Smith because that beard is fake that he has. My guess is because Matt Smith's beard is dark, like his hair is really dark, so they had to give him a fake beard. It doesn't look fake, though. I mean, it looks horrible. Oh. I don't like it, but it... <laughs> no, it's not trimmed at all. It's just, you know, bushy, bushy, and it's, but it's fake. Yeah. There is some conversation about the beard because Queen Elizabeth's like, oh, they've all grown beards. And Margaret says, makes them look a little shifty. <laughs> and I love how that's very sisterly irritation. Queen Elizabeth looks at her. It makes mm -hmm. them look like explorers. Like she's she was really bummed out because here she was admiring him and Margaret has to say something snotty. And yeah. it's just you can see the history of their relationship <laughs> in that one little. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, I think Mike and Philip couldn't be cuter with these penguins. I mean, 
We love the ones at the zoo. They're just like that. They're all bold and they don't care. Like, who are you? I'm coming over there. I wish I could sit in your lap. Like, they don't care. They they want to know who you are. They're not afraid. They want to be with you. And if the keepers at our zoo would let them, they would just climb all over you. And honestly, they should sell tickets to that. Like a limited number of tickets a day for someone to just literally go and sit in that stank enclosure that smells like red lobster. And... <laughs> I know. But there you go. I have just funded our zoo for eternity because <laughs> it would be so delightful. I would really enjoy that. Like, it's not as good as petting baby tigers, which is another one of my lifelong dreams. But penguins are so curious and cute and want to hang out with you. And I love how they got those pictures like that. Yeah, they do look like they're having fun, you know, and they're frolicking in the Antarctic, I guess like guys would, right? Although it's the Antarctic. Isn't it really cold? They don't have like they have hats and, you know, heavy coats on, but But it's I don't know. The summer as far as summer goes. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> as far as summer goes, there's still, you know, penguins and snow and ice, but <laughs> but it's warm. It's a warm cold. <laughs> well, and you know, we were just thinking here yesterday here it was maybe six degrees mm-hmm. and it was bitter cold. And then today it's gonna be thirty-two degrees. And in comparison to the six degrees it's like, oh, let's all go outside. Yeah. So it's all in a matter of what you're acclimated to because they've been traveling toward the Arctic Circle and I just think you get used to it. And so if you get a day that's like, oh, it's only 32 today, then you take off your coat, just like we are going to do today. It's so crazy. Yesterday, you couldn't even stir outside. And today, even though it's only in the 20s already this morning, there's people out there jogging and doing whatnot because of yesterday. I don't know. I still think it's really cold. (laughs) So there is a scene where she's like, this is very funny, mommy. And then they look at the signage and there's a sign that says Buckingham Palace, 10,000 miles. Yeah. It actually gives a download. It's like 10,098 miles. I mean, in actuality, Google says it's like 8,000, but let's just give them the benefit of the doubt for where exactly they are in Antarctica. (laughs) And the queen mom screams, ew, Buckingham Palace. Ew, that's good. I like that. And remember, she is seven or eight drinks in at this point. (laughs) (laughs) No. <laughs> There's another sign that they show that says British Crown Land. And that's actually a sign that's well photographed. You can Google image it. Um, I believe it's on more than one location in this area, but it's right there. British Crown Land. Well, Queen Elizabeth is just mesmerized by Philip's face on the screen. Maybe comparing it to the face that left, which was awful grumpy and tense and angry. In fact, it's Pretty magical, the difference in him. Now, he's obviously tailoring his film toward his children, I think. He talks about the dogs. They talk about tennis balls and how they have different colored eyes. And Queen Mom screams out, like the Kaiser, which I could find no information on Wilhelm II having two different colored eyes. It's called heterochromia iridium. Yeah, I couldn't either. And I wondered after that if it was like a joke. Like he saw things two different ways or something. I don't know. (laughs) Of course, I was completely sober when I was thinking about it. So (laughs) maybe I needed to get into her particular frame of mind (laughs) with a few pink drinks. There's a lot of uh, celebrities that have that. Jane Seymour, Myla Kunis, Bill Pullman, Benedict Cumberbatch. Christopher uh, Walken. Yes, Dan Aykroyd, Jonathan Rhys Myers, and not... Not David Bowie, who's the most <laughs> famous human who's, who supposedly has two different colored eyes. His do look two different colors, but it's not real. He doesn't have that genetic mutation. He had a head injury that caused one of his pupils to remain permanently dilated. So one of his eyes looks dark and one of his eyes looks very light. 
So David Bowie did not have heterochromia. So the end of the long sequence, it is a pretty long sequence of flipping back and forth. It's focused on Elizabeth, who is really smitten with the film version of Philip. There's really a touching back and forth between real Philip, film Philip, and Queen Elizabeth. It's like um, hope, I guess, has sprung forth for a reconciliation. That's what we, the audience, are supposed to feel. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's definitely making goo-goo eyes at the film. And I think partially because she knows that he's writing this letter to their kids. I mean, what's hotter than seeing your husband playing with the kids? And I think that's part of it. And she does miss him. She's a woman. She misses her husband, even though he's being kind of a jerk before he left, which is why he left. She misses him. And now we're back at the palace where Elizabeth encounters Tommy Lassels by accident outside the palace as he is arriving. And he manages to evade her questions about why he's there. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, oh, I thought you were having a happy retirement. And he says, I am. She's just answering his question. Then she's like, well, why are you here? But before he even has a chance to address it or come up with an answer, although he probably has one already in his head, she's like, you just couldn't bear to be away from us, right? You missed us more than you could bear. Well, and then she thinks she's being sly by saying, well, it's obviously serious or we wouldn't have sent a car. He explains that's actually my car, my retirement (laughs) present, not the driver, too. Yes, the driver. And then she goes, goodness, was that me? Yes, in fact, it was you. You signed the paper anyway. Um, So... She is so clueless, kind of. I know, I know. She recognizes the car as one of their royal mobiles, but she didn't know what was in his um, exit package. Well, he is so good at showing somebody a shiny thing and diverting their thoughts because hers do veer off in another direction. And evidently, Aideen has manipulated her into getting out of town for a couple days, too. So she is the subject of some hard work by two gentlemen to get her out of town. Yeah, that was the phone call at the very beginning when, you know, Aideen called up Lassels and was like, Tommy, Tommy, we have a problem, was implied. I loved her coat. (laughs) Some people might think it was just a little too big on her, but it was this beautiful blue. um, I'm going to say it was cashmere. It was kind of a long swing coat. And she had a little burgundy hat with a hydrangea silk flower on the side of it. It was lovely. It reminded me a lot of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is an Amazon series, which I strongly recommend you see. That's the kind of clothing that she wears in that show. And I don't know. I love that coat. I wanted to wear it. There is a strategy meeting between Tommy Lassels and Michael Aideen to save the Parker marriage. And I found it telling that Tommy Lassels tells us, the audience, that he has served under four monarchs and is mainly concerned with protecting them from themselves. And to me, that seemed like the crown, the institution, is his employer. That's who he's worked for, not any of the actual rulers. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a personal secretary, so I guess that makes sense. But yeah, no, I completely agree. He's been retired for years. This is 57. He retired, I think, in... 53. You can't leave. It's like the Hotel California. (laughs) They, the men, have determined that their only route to salvation here is to try to save the Parker marriage and or just literally legally prevent Mrs. Parker from getting her divorce, which is very cold, I think. But there is a very weird smile from Michael Aiding when Tommy Lassell says, not that we give a fig 
about the Parkers or their happiness. And I'm like, Aideen is hoping for the other F word. Hoping, hoping, naughty, naughty. But um, he doesn't get it because the guy says fig. Very disappointing, really. I think he's got uh, Lassell's envy. Just the way he looks at him is kind of he looks up to him. I mean, the guy had his job for quite a long time. So I'm sure professionally he looks up to him. But I think as a person... Like their personalities are very different. And I think he wants to be more like Tommy Lassell's and he's not. There's a little bit in that scene where the, he has like mustache envy or something because Dean like goes to touch his mustache at the same time that Lassell's is going to touch his. And Lassell's is like big and bushy and Adine's is not. <laughs> Aww. Well, and it's kind of sad because he is not built the same way. I mean, Tommy Lassell's is functionally a robot. No. <laughs> Um, And Aideen has too much concern for what people think of him and how other people are going to feel about what he says. And Tommy Lassels does not care. We travel to the Britannia and there is a brief view of the telegraph room. Not as brief as it could be. There's only one guy, weirdly. So is this a slow day or the middle of the night? I don't know. But the guy cannot find any paper. Drawer after drawer he opens. And I'm like, what is the story with that? And Here's what my theory is, because behind this scene, obviously, since they're in the telegraph room, they want to keep that sound, the agitated, like alarming sound of the Morse code going under, because that sound bleeds into the next scene to cause tension, I think, which is Elizabeth writing to Philip at her desk, which is intercut with Philip happily reading her letter to a group of men on the boat and spirits are high. But the telegraph sound goes through most of at least the first part of the next couple scenes. It does. And it does do exactly what you just said. It kind of sets the tone like something urgent is happening here, something behind the scenes that's going to cause great havoc. But meanwhile, Elizabeth, oh, I'm sorry. She's smiling and writing a letter. Anytime they show Elizabeth smiling and writing a letter, it's not good. The first time... (laughs) For the first time, it was when she was in Africa and she was writing to her father who was dead. And then the second time was when she was writing a note to slip into Philip's bag when she found the picture of the ballerina in his bag. So nothing good happens when Elizabeth smiles and writes letters. Yeah, he reads out, it was lovely to set eyes on you again. You looked very handsome. And then you get a brief vision of Mike's message arriving. The telegraph operator kind of has a face on like, well, sucks to be you, dude, and hands (laughs) him the piece of paper. And Mike looks suitably medium upset. Um, So Philip, who sounds sort of drunk, I think they're all drunk. It's an all skate. They're in the officer's lounge or something. And many people have a glass of what I can assume is not tea. Um, And he's reading Elizabeth's letter. I can never forget what my grandmother said to me about being married to a man with a beard. And they laugh like it is a sexual reference. But the only quote I can find is marry a man with a beard because a man patient enough to grow a beard has patience enough to deal with your um, bull poo. (laughs) (laughs) well maybe they didn't know that and they were just making things up about what would happen to a man who has a beard how would that affect a woman i mean these are guys at the frat house so maybe she meant it like you have a lot of patience and they took it like oh ho ho whatever i'm gonna pretend i understand this joke because i don't yeah and then philip's like oh i'm not gonna read the rest and lord dirtbag parker grabs the letter out of his hand and starts to read it and then he just says something like well it looks like he's going to have a great reception when he gets home har 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 oh that guy is so scuzzy 
<laughs> and I'm just like, what could she have written? Because she is not really one to be saucy. <laughs> we saw her face. She's just sitting there with this mild cow-like face on at her desk. And she hasn't written a spicy paragraph. So Mike's just, Mike's playing the room, I think. Uh, yes. Although Philip does seem very, very anxious not to let him read that next paragraph. So I don't know. <laughs> I seriously doubt that it was queen porn. <laughs> so Anthony Eden, back in London, catches sight of all the very unflattering newspaper headlines about his return. Headlines like, Where have you been, Sir Anthony? And PM who abandoned the country returns. Yeah, there's this huge stack of newspapers on the table and he's flipping through them and they're all negative. The, the biggest headline is, of course, about him and, you know, where's he been and how horrible he is. There's a headline that says 600 Port Said troops in hunt for officer. And that's regarding um, something that was called the Morehouse Affair. When the British were in Egypt, towards the end of the Suez Crisis, one of their officers was kidnapped by the Egyptians and taken for a ransom. It was a botched kidnapping, and the officer ended up suffocating in a cabinet. So it was all over bad situation. Yeah, they had stashed him in fear of their lives and then ran away um, to evade the search or whatnot. And then they didn't feel safe to come back for a few days. And by that time, their captive had died. So it's not like they necessarily meant to kill him. They just meant to hide him for a couple hours, and then they found it impossible to come back. So he died. Mm -hmm. Anthony Eden goes upstairs to enter the council room, and he has every appearance of thinking it's going to be business as usual. But instead, the room is full of treachery. So he mentions that all these months, we've had a united government. I guess he's been gone for almost two months, and many of the other people in this room have had to not only clean up his mess, but, you know, juggle and tap dance and keep the PR going. And I think they're... Full of resentment. In fact, I know they are, <laughs> given the fact that they crack right after this. And one of them says, the war you insisted on has left us worse than Caesar and Pompey. We are in chaos. Caesar and Pompey, of course, were involved in a violent civil war that actually ended up ending the Roman Republic. It is a very classical, again, Eaton slash Harrow example, using history to make your point. But the fact is, the government is more divided than it ever has been. So are the people. And it as far as they're concerned, is all Anthony Eden's fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the guy that's talking is uh, Macmillan, and he kind of outlines all the chaos that the crisis had left on the people. There's no gas. There's no food. The allies are all against us. Their reputation is in tatters, all because of this decision that, in their words, Eden did by himself in a vacuum. Hmm. Well, and of course, Anthony Eden... It's like, you helped. And Macmillan and friends are bland as bland can be. And Macmillan says calmly, well, I supported it as long as it was legal. His exact words in that previous episode, in fact, were uh, Anthony Eden said, we must attack quickly and decisively. And then Macmillan said, I think it's the right thing for the country. And for you personally. Finally, you can step out from Winston's long shadow. Those right there were his exact words. That doesn't bring up any objections about legality or concern about not going forward without allies and blah, blah, blah. Right. So Eden is justifiably angry because he is being thrown under the bus. But it is an all skate. As he looks around, every single person is going to go along with this. There's been plenty of time to set this up. Oh, and he shouldn't be surprised. 
because they were planning the same thing for Churchill around that same table, except he was the person that was going to benefit from that situation. Mm. So he should have known. He, how could he possibly be surprised that these people who were ready to turn on and backstab Winston Churchill wouldn't do the same thing for him? Yeah, he realizes he's expected to resign. Mm -hmm. No one in this room is under any illusions because there has to be a bad guy. And honestly, you made it easy for us, dude. You know, you left. You're the bad guy. Well, Macmillan says, you know as well as I do, there's no justice in politics. And I have to say, at least he's putting an honest finish on this very treacherous conversation. And it's blowing Anthony Eden's mind. But I don't know. I don't know what he expected. I really think he expected to walk in there. I think his ego was big enough in this show um, to think that everybody would have covered his fanny while he was gone and just welcome him with open arms. He didn't even look upset when he was reading those headlines. He looked a little frustrated, but he didn't look like raging mad. No, when he, he looked was... like dang press. Exactly. Well, we can overcome this. It'll fade away. Mm -hmm. I think that just goes to show how we can lie to ourselves into believing certain things. Well, Mrs. Parker is out on the rugby pitch watching her son and his team play in the park. And hey, she encounters Tommy Lassels. And she's happy to see him at first. Yeah, she is. He's sitting on a bench nearby and she turns around and she's like, Captain Lassell? Like, oh, what are you doing here? And he looks like he's surprised and he stands up with his umbrella and his book and he goes to greet her and they have a little small talk about what kind of book he's reading. And it's not poetry. It's military history, of course. <laughs> Napoleonic history at that. And, you know, we've seen his reenactment with the little figurines, right? So military history to him is like reading a romance to other people. He finds that relaxing and that's a light reading. So I'm not surprised <laughs> at all. And also they do both live in Kensington. We've heard them both into the phone. So him being in the neighborhood is not at all strange. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so he does live there. It's not like he's traveled from Mars. At least there's that. I love how they actually kind of snuck that in. Yeah. I am just shocked that you haven't mentioned her outfit in this particular scene. <laughs> okay, well, I actually wrote down a little bit later. I hate her freaking mustard and pickle outfit. And she has a mustard colored turtleneck on with a wackadoo baby poop green plaid swing coat jacket on. No like. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. She was really modern. She was the only woman near in that area that had pants on. Trousers? Slacks? I don't know. What are we calling them then? Except for the hideous coat. She probably could have gotten away with that outfit in 2017, 2018. I don't know if that mustard color's ever coming back. Well, that's what I'm saying, except for the jacket. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. I really do. Uh, it's like a 70s refrigerators. Yeah. <laughs> I hope the Pantone people listen to us. Don't bring it back. Get this. How well does she know him to feel free to complain about Mike, quote, not knowing what the children look like? All these men who don't know what their children look like. And also that her marriage is broken. So I know she wasn't involved in politics as much as maybe some other political wives. She wanted to stay out of it. And maybe that is the key to how she feels so free because she's not in awe of him because she hasn't had to go to all these official engagements with him. Mm -hmm. To her, maybe he's a guy from her husband's work. Yeah. Yeah. And not even her husband's boss. So she didn't have to toe the line. Know. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And this is the one thing, especially for a guy that was reading military history, he plays his hand way too fast. Yeah. And 
before she even really says too much about the relationship and how she's going to file for divorce, she just touches on it. He asks her to hold off on an announcement so it doesn't uh, rub off on the royal marriage. He misses a key segue. He ought to have said, like, oh, no, what are you going to do? Can I help? The end. Walk away. Have a good day. Let it percolate. Go away. I mean, here I am with military strategy, but like you have to end on that kind of note. Maybe come back the next day, the next two days. I've been thinking, blah, blah, blah. But no, he goes right into, you know, hold off on the announcement. It's bad for the royal family, which is so clumsy of him. I was very surprised. I would expect better from him. (laughs) And I thought, well, maybe he's not used to handling things with this kind of raw emotion in them, like does not compute. That chemistry (laughs) doesn't work the same way. So he's unmasked as a stalking stalker. Yeah. And she's not taking any of it. She's crossed her own line. And she's like, you're still their lackey, even in retirement. And she calls him pathetic. (laughs) And she pees out. And his face simply says, well, that might have gone better. (laughs) He's not even that upset. Like, oh, well. I think he accepts uh, success and defeat in the same tone. (laughs) So let's just say that Mrs. Parker was not buying what he was selling and she's going to do whatever the age she wants. The end. So here's the thing. We have a view of a train crossing, I don't know, full countryside, kind of pretty. And I like it when the camera is right on the wheel. They did that with a car last episode. We see above the train and beside the train and this and that. And what is all this about? So it's intercut with Michael Edeen informing Elizabeth that the prime minister is on that train and will be with them by three o'clock. That's unusual, isn't it? It is, especially since she was just sent away for two days off. And, you know, they show her getting there with her corgis and she's going to chill out for a couple of days. It's the first sighting of that iconic gauze headscarf, by the way, when she's coming to the door. My grandma wore them, too. And I guess when you got your hair washed and set once a week, you didn't want wind or whatnot to... Get a hold of your head, I guess. And, uh, um, I know. But you didn't want to crush it with a hat. So you had the gauze headscarf. And I love the corgis dancing around her feet. You know, it's like so playful. It's just such a juxtaposition between the serious and heavy metal of the train. She had over 30 corgis so far during her reign. That's a lot of dogs. That is a lot of dogs. <laughs> she was the first to breed dorgies, which are a combination of a dachshund and a corgi. All is quiet. On platform one at the station, very calm and content. They take a moment to show us that everyone's going about their business until Anthony Eden is spotted and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, all these people that were formerly mulling about and there didn't look like there was a whole lot of them there. Suddenly they're a mob and they're all screaming at Eden, very angry, you know, really angry messages. And he just almost looks taken aback. You know, he didn't expect this. Well, and of course you're like, well, what's the big deal? Who, what, why would they yell at him? Okay, here's why. It's all young men yelling, at least at the station. Now I want you to think about this. Who fights in an illegal war? Any man between 17 and 20 had to spend two years in military service. So that usually meant, you know, going to a colonial outpost and keeping order or something relatively calm. But this war meant that many of these men who 
simply are there to do national service, you know, got sent right from basic training into a war zone. Now, this isn't like World War II, the last moral war, as far as I'm concerned, that you were saving the world from tyranny. This is a ridiculously illegal war that, as far as they're concerned, Anthony Eden forced them to go to and killed their friends, their brothers. Maybe they are on their way there. So they are justifiably angry. I read a quote from a man that talked about the public opinion of the National Service The further we got from 1945, there was the belief that we were being ripped off and the bloody government was shoving us into a place we didn't know or care about. And it is notable to know that that requirement was abolished in 1960, largely because of the Suez crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would certainly get um, these young men angry. And they had memories of World War II, gas rationing and food rationing. And they're seeing all that horrible stuff without a reason to be fighting for it. So, you know, it's costing them in their pockets as well as costing them their lives. Yeah, they're going to be mad. So Mr. and Mrs. Eden have to be kind of hustled out of the station with a large police presence. I'm not sure where all the police came from, but there they all are. And they had to be um, taken in protective custody out to their car. So back at Sandringham, McDonald is helping Queen Elizabeth get dressed. So we have multiple changes of clothes again, even though we're functionally alone. In our country house, we have lots of wardrobe changes, and Mr. and Mrs. Eden are traveling in the car to Sandringham, and a furious crowd has anticipated their arrival, and I don't know how, in this pre-internet age, that they knew to be there, unless they literally camped there all the time, protesting the queen, who was not supposed to be at Sandringham. Mm -hmm. And they had signs, yeah. There's a little hole here for us to fall into. When they're in the car, they're doing this kind of royal look straight ahead thing. They must all be trained on it. Like, don't even glance at the people outside the car, even when they're banging on the windows. Just look straight ahead with a blank face on. Don't show terror. Don't show anything. And they have to drive through here. On the way there and on the train, I loved how the scenery was kind of going by and the reflection on the window. It's like it's going by too fast. You know that, You know how when you're doing things like that that you don't want to do, they happen way too fast. That's the image you were getting. Plus, the music was very hurry up. Something's going to happen here kind of music. So Anthony Eden is delivering his slightly fraudulent resignation to Queen Elizabeth. He he goes back in on the doctors are telling me to go. She had that royal blank on her face right then and there while she's listening to it. And you can see him kind of get emboldened because, oh, she's buying what I'm selling. The last thing he's saying is, sorry if I disappointed you. So she tells him she's not disappointed in him exactly that she was very sorry to see him lie to the house and she also twists the knife a little bit in her polite little lady way (laughs) that she's not the little lady anthony eden that you think she is she twists the knife a little and says it must have been very difficult to live under his shadow for so long as an ambitious man and right when you finally got your chance this is what happens oh Yeah, she calls him on it right away. I mean, this is very kind of new queen for her, I think, because she's been keeping up on everything that's been going on. And she knew that he was responsible for this war. She knew everything that he was saying wasn't really the real reason why he was stepping down. Mm -hmm. And she I mean, she called him on it right then and there. Boom, buddy. And do you really think that what happens in the council chamber stays in the council chamber? You know, somebody has been on the phone, at least to Lassels, if not to Adine, if not to the queen herself. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. somebody in that room has leaked 
the real reason. She oh. knows. She knows, but she's politely letting this fiction stand, sort of. In fact, she paraphrases Winston Churchill from season one to him. To do nothing is often the best course of action. And she says it's only natural that ambitious men want to go down in history. And then he says, with this kind of defeated look on his face, he says, or make history by going down. Yeah, he tried to crack a little joke, but it made him sad almost immediately. Very, very sad. Mm -hmm. This is truth. And Anthony Eden, a broken man, we see him through the window, getting back into his car and driving away. He lives a long time after this, by the way. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, like 1981, I think. Boy, when he's walking out of the house, he just looks old. It's like that one meeting aged him 20 years. And now it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will find out what happens with the new prime minister and the new relationship between Queen Elizabeth and Philip. And now a brief intermission. are back. So poor old Anthony Eden. While he's walking to the car, we hear a voiceover. It is Tommy Lassels. He's on the phone with Michael Aideen, and they are discussing telling Queen Elizabeth about the Parker divorce and what it means. I like how they say, regardless of how blameless the Duke is, or isn't, questions will be asked now about the royal marriage. Yeah, they're agreeing that it's time to tell her about what's going on. Although there's some discussion about who has to do it or rather who gets to do it. Because I think Tommy was like excited to do it. He's like, oh, I'll do it. And Michael's like, no, no, I've got it. Well, I'll try and find time on the train to tell her. He does not want to be the one that wipes a smile off her face. Whereas Tommy sort of doesn't care. I like how he says myself. I'll do it myself (laughs) if you like. I love it. it. And he's sitting in that room you were talking about, his war room where he plays war. But it's like those guys that have fully set up train sets, only his is little soldiers. Mm -hmm. Yes. Historically accurate. (laughs) Well, so on the train, Aideen delivers Queen Elizabeth the recommendation about the replacement prime minister. Woo. Okay. (sighs) That was easy, right? But now he has to deliver the unsettling news about the Parker divorce. And he doesn't really do it real smoothly. (laughs) The queen is sitting in her car. She's at a desk. She's wearing that great coat again, doing some queenly paperwork. And he's talking to her. And he was doing really good, like you said. And then all of a sudden he got super awkward and he starts stumbling around with the words. So she is already interested because he's so awkward. Well, she's decided to sue her husband for divorce. And she is shocked and saddened. Oh, that's too bad. You know, they are old friends from the Malta days, from the Malta days. And then he moves on to the critical part where she has no inkling of this. Well, of course, there's no suggestion of any impropriety on the Duke of Edinburgh's part, but we should be bracing ourselves for one or two. He called them irritating headlines. (laughs) And she asked him, she's like, well, what is Eileen alleging? And that's when he has to tell her everything. So he says, he like takes a really deep breath, cruelty, unlawful desertion. And, and then there's a train whistle. 
And as soon as it finishes, he has to say the word adultery, ma'am. Oh, and then he mentions that there was a letter bragging about dot, dot, dot exploits. What do you mean? She says. And then there's a brief moment where he's like, he can't get it out. He can't possibly say the word sex to A, the queen and B, a woman. No, he can't say it. And she lets him off the hook. I don't need to know. That's fine. Yeah, she did a good job keeping her face together. Just another bit of news you've given me that I need to deal with. As soon as Adine leaves, her face dropped. We travel via the magic of movies to Macmillan, the new prime minister-elect, who is peeing, is that necessary, and looking at himself in the mirror, not simultaneously. (laughs) And I have this Irish friend who refers to a guy who is like an Eddie Haskell, oh, please, oh, please, get my Leave it to be the reference and not make me feel really old. But he is something else. She calls people like that that try to make themselves look friendlier and insert themselves into your life, a piss artist. And I'm like, is the fact that we're seeing him peeing and that he is an Eddie Haskell figure, is this like a illumination of his piss artistry? I mean, it kind of is. He looks in the mirror and I couldn't tell what his expression was. It was one of three things. It's like, do I look different now that I'm the prime minister or holy crap, what have I done? Or maybe he was like trying to psych himself up, you know, dude, you got this. I couldn't read his face, but there was kind of uh, emotion on it, I think. No, I just think he's more like, you've got this, my man. (laughs) So he is her third prime minister. By the way, Queen Elizabeth, our Queen Elizabeth, real modern day Queen Elizabeth is up to 14 prime ministers now. And the last one, Theresa May, was born the year this episode is supposed to depict. That's very cool. I think Tommy Lassell's had um, an interesting birth story. He was born the year of Victoria's Golden Jubilee, and then he died just a few days after Prince Charles and Lady Diana got married. Ooh, those are good bookends to a I know. I think so. So Macmillan comes and meets Queen Elizabeth, and um, he starts out shady. But luckily, Queen Elizabeth soon puts him in his place. Her first line was really interesting. I fear you have inherited a poisoned chalice, she says. (laughs) Yeah, you think? (laughs) He walked into that room with so much ego. I mean, it was just dripping off of him. Like, I know you're waiting for me. I am the person you've been waiting for. I am so awesome. You are going to love me. I'm going to fix everything. I'm so great, I tell myself. I I couldn't believe his ego when he walked in. Well, and then he starts out, gosh, you just never do this. You don't know what the other person knows. He calls it Eden's War. Mm -hmm. Mm. He throws or attempts to throw Anthony Eden under the bus. Just like in that room, everybody agreed he was the fall guy, right? Everyone agreed. Except for, like I said, I know everything leaks out. Mm -hmm. When he's doing this, her face is pretty blank. She's just listening to what he's saying. And then she just says... But it wasn't Eden's war. You were chancellor and had a part in it. It was the government's war, and you were a very loud voice in support of it all. So she totally calls him on his stuff. And then she says, one always has to accept one's own part in any mess. And then it is like, bye. I know. They just had this one short conversation, and she reaches for the bell for him to go. That's it. Goodbye. I'm going to illuminate your place for you, if that's um, that what we need to do. 
Yeah. And how low, in fact, it really is once you get here. She's <laughs> doing a lot better at, do you remember in season one how she was advised to talk to these upper class British men in a stern nanny voice because they love nothing more than to be scolded by nanny? <laughs> I know, kind of gross and sexist, but in fact, she's getting way better at scold- not scolding them necessarily, but just calling them on their BS. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah, it- in season one, she was afraid. She was afraid that they knew more, that she was nothing, that she wasn't authorized to act like this. And now she's really kind of coming into her own. Like, you know what? I have a position of power and I'm going to wield it. Yeah, I think probably having Winston Churchill as your training prime minister would help in that situation. So in the busy communications room of the Britannia, again, an operator is receiving a message. I think it's the same operator, but now he has friends with him. Maybe it's the middle of the day. We see the words, begin legal proceedings. And the operator hands it to Mike, who is lurking nearby. And I don't know if I imagine a look of concern in the operator's eyes. I saw the same look. It was like, oh, buddy, I don't want to hand this to you, but here you go. And Mike really does look surprised. He's looking really nervous as he reads it. It's not good. It's not good at all. So Mike, yeah, takes the message. He's full of angst and he's standing on deck with his message. And we still don't know 100% what the message is, although, you know, any of us can connect the dots. I do not think he cares one bit about his marriage. I think he cares as a career deal breaker because I think divorced people can't work at court during this time. It's what Mm -hmm. I think he's upset over. Or the fact that Philip is going to be livid over the letter, which what happens on tour stays on tour. You know, he's broken the trust and that deal. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you. He's just trying to formulate his next step strategy. He's not caring about his marriage at all. So Mike interrupts Philip's painting to confess, now this is off screen, because, you know, we know the story, we don't need to rehash it, uh, about the letter and about its consequences. Philip is sitting there, he's painting a watercolor of a parrot, and in real life, the real Philip does paint. He's very good. He's a very good amateur painter. He's done it his whole life. Even on that particular um, excursion, he had an artist come on board for a while named Edward Sego, and they painted together and he learned from him. He has been a lifetime painter. There is a painting from later, 1965 painting called The Queen at Breakfast that is really very, very good. Also, this Edward Sego painted Philip at the easel and Philip painted Edward Sego at the easel. And those two paintings are being shown together. So I'll give you a link at the end of the show about that. Now, I, I can see why they didn't include him. Um, this painter is it's just like needless extra characters or whatever. But I do like the fact that they kind of hinted at Philip's talent. Queen Victoria, who he's descended from, was quite a good drawer. (laughs) And on our Queen Victoria Pinterest board, there's a whole bunch of drawings she's done, mostly of her family, domestic scene. So it runs in the family. Cool. So they talk about the letter and Philip is really devastated and says, this letter has obviously got back to you know who. (laughs) He's like, what were you thinking? You knew the rules. And Mike's like, well, I told Baron to be discreet. If there's a very loud voice, it would be Mike and it would be Baron, two people who are not discreet Mm. at all. So Queen Elizabeth is, there's no other word for it, stalking Eileen outside of her house. She is staking it out. She's sitting there in the car on a street and people are passing. And I turned on the closed captioning to see if they're mentioning the fact that this is a royal car or there's the queen with transparent car windows. 
<laughs> and nobody says anything like, oh, good day. Oh, ha, ha, ha. You know, like, they're not even noticing. I thought that was bizarre, too. Was, the queen is sitting right there in the backseat of her car. She's just parked at the sidewalk, you know, and nobody's looking in. Oh, okay. But then when Eileen pulls up, Eileen recognizes the car and sees her immediately, which is a very specific kind of invisibility cloak she's got going on then. (laughs) One of her queenly powers. Eileen's face kind of goes through several emotions when she sees her. It's, okay, why is she here? And then Queen Elizabeth kind of smiles at her and she smiles back because they were friends as Eileen is getting her groceries out of the trunk of her car or the boot, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. (laughs) Well, um, they are going to have tea because that's the standard reception beverage. And so they're having a conversation as Eileen's unpacking the groceries. They're doing a little small talk about Malta and how they used to walk to the market. And I can really see the two ladies with nothing official to do, frankly, with their sunglasses and their espadrilles in the sun, walking along with their string bags. And it's like another life, really. It's another It's like it happened to foreign people that aren't even them. So there's a little bit of recalling of the joys of that idle time, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do, too. Eileen's like, that was a very long time ago. You know, so much has happened. I did freeze frame it on the groceries in her bag. She had Parker's, that's the brand name, Parker's sage and onion stuffing, some cookies, biscuits, Heinz tomato sauce, some jam tarts, a can of creamed rice milk pudding. I know it doesn't sound really healthy. I'm going to assume she put away the vegetables first. Maybe they were on the top. (laughs) I'm going to assume this is the 50s and there were a lot of canned uh, meals. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We should link you to. Oh, my gosh. What is the name of that series? I'll remember by the time we put it in the show notes. There is a series that I love to watch. It's Back in Time for Dinner. That's what it is about the history of dinner time in Britain from the war and all of its privations. I think they even go back to the 30s before the war through the modern day. Um, And they take one family and they have one week of eating in each decade. And the 50s were all about like, oh, simply open a can and hey, presto, you've got rice pudding or whatever. So yeah, this is the 50s. Yep. And the Parker's sage and onion stuffing. (laughs) Which is a box and not a can, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's instant food. Yay. Instant. You don't have to work at it. Also, I think I need one of those string bags. I think I used to have one, but I need one. And it's better than those manky, dirty old plastic totes that everyone has that no one ever washes. I hate those. I know they're good for the planet, but I don't. They're like full of meat juice and old. You get your meats wrapped in plastic. That's what I do. And I do wash mine. I mean, not every time, but I agree with you. They're germ filled but I'm not putting produce in there that isn't in a bag. I prefer them because you can pack a lot of stuff in that thing and you don't have to make as many trips back to the kitchen. So Queen Elizabeth and Eileen have a conversation and Queen Elizabeth starts out better, (laughs) at least at the beginning. She, you know, can I help in any way? And it is a little friendlier than Lassell's conversation. I think mostly because they have a personal history. But Eileen reveals that she has wanted to divorce her husband for years. And she held off because of all the fracas with Margaret and Peter Townsend. And it was quite a sacrifice, in fact, to hold off. And Elizabeth thanks her a lot for that. And she asks what's changed. 
And Eileen's like, that's the thing. Nothing has changed. Nothing. And some women, ooh, this is direct, directed Mm -hmm. at Elizabeth. Some women may put up with this humiliation, but I have too much respect for myself and my children to bear it. And man, there is the look. Yeah. Elizabeth has no idea what she's talking about. And she goes, okay, fine. So Eileen goes and gets the letter and hands it to her. And it's that letter that she got from the waitress in the last episode. And she hands it to Elizabeth and just says, just read it. Digest everything that's in here because it's all the truth. And she says, don't bury it or sweep it away. (laughs) Boy, does she know, you know, her audience. She knows exactly that's what Elizabeth would do. And Elizabeth asks her if she could hold off until they get a strategy on her end. And Eileen rightfully so, is like, hell no, I am not holding off. Not at all. It's done. I'm not doing anything for you people again. Yeah. Oh, how far it's gone from reminiscing about Malta to calling her you people. She's letting it all out. She blames the royal family for her situation. Not Mike Parker, at least not here. I think she's blaming the royal family for mm, maybe she's blaming herself for allowing the royal family to dictate the course of her life because she's been holding off on this divorce for a long time. She's been miserable for even longer. And it's all because of this family that she's not even a part of, you know, her life is revolving around them and they're dictating it. And she's done being dictated to. But it's not their fault. That's how it is. That's I guess my point is she's blaming them. Mm -hmm. But it is what it is. You accept it or you say no. But I guess Eileen Parker was a trailing spouse and didn't have the option to say no. And her husband said, yes, 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 yes. Oh, please. The Antarctic. Oh, yes. I'll be away from home for months at a time. Oh, yes. So it really is Mike Parker's fault. The royal family just goes along like a big machine and you stay on the machine or you get off. Mm -hmm. But I know she kind of resents the royal family when she really needs to resent her husband as the main actor. It's not Elizabeth's fault. Mm Mm-mm. No. And I think she's mad at herself, too, for letting it go on this long. So the next thing you see is Eileen's lawyer outside of his door making a statement to the press. To a lot of the press. And could he be any creepier looking? (laughs) I mean, I know we saw him behind the desk before, but in the light of day, he's even scarier. (laughs) But he's telling the press that this divorce has been filed. Eileen has filed for divorce from Lieutenant Parker. What she has filed for is actually a formal separation, which um, evidently at the time you had to file that. And then you had to have a six month period in which you didn't live together or there was no, what did they call it? Like attempt at reconciliation. Like Mm -hmm. if he spent the night on the couch once, I think the six months had to start over. Um, And now it's six weeks, but it's the same type of situation. Before you could file for a divorce, you had to have that little period first. But her direct words were, my husband shows no inclination or enthusiasm for the responsibilities of marriage or parenthood. That's harsh. So there's a brief scene of a newspaperman doing a brisk business. Duke's best friend and wife separate. Read all about it. And then a little montage of all hell breaking loose. It's different people reacting to newspapers with the telegraph sound again throughout to add a little anxiety. 
<laughs> yeah, read all about it. Okay, everybody is going to. It's really high drama. Um, you're going to see people reading it on the Britannia. You're going to see Michael Adeen aghast reading the paper. You're going to see Tommy read the paper, although his face is not aghast. He's just like taking it all in. Uh, and, <laughs> and then Elizabeth reading about Duke's best friend and wife, you know, divorcing. And the queen mom is looking very concerned. Mike Parker is on the ship. He's just kind of sulking around. So there's this montage of all these people digesting the news. There is a period where Queen Elizabeth comes in to breakfast and there are three servants setting up her meal who have obviously been talking amongst themselves, probably downstairs in the servants' hall, because I do not think they would dare have that conversation upstairs. But they all, you know, like when your boss comes in and you've been like lying around how you're like, oh, I am busy. I'm doing things. La, la, la. <laughs> so they have obviously been at least looking at all the newspapers that she's about to see at the end of the table. Um, yeah, it's not good. We do zoom in right at the last part of this montage on Queen Elizabeth at her breakfast with so many breakfast dishes, by the way, I should count them. It's well over 40 different items of cutlery and etc. It's not even a look of shock. It's just a look of, I don't even know what I would call it. Well, it isn't shock anymore because she had the meeting with Eileen. She knew this was going to happen. Not happy. No, not happy at all. So back on the Britannia, Philip asks for and gets Mike's resignation. Mike had knocked on the door and he's going to give Philip a recap of the news, but he's like totally spinned it all in his favor. He's like, well, we're just going to lay low for 48 hours and this whole thing will die down, he says. And Philip coldly says, I've had my own telegram from London and I hope you're not going to make this next step difficult for me. Oh, there's a pause. Isn't there? And the emotions that pass over Mike Parker's face. Mike Parker offers to give him his resignation soonest, which I mean, I guess tomorrow or whatever. And he's like, I need it right now, right now. And Mike boggles. He can't believe it. He barely holds it together, I think, in there. He is about to cry. I do think he's about to cry. He just kind of, once he's resigned himself to the fact, he stands up as straight as he possibly can and delivers his resignation to the Duke. And the Duke just says accepted. And then Philip says, you've been here long enough. You know there's no room for humanity. Outside the room, Mike Parker wants so badly to cry, but he has to make his way through the whole ship to wherever he lives before he could break down. It's tough. I've been in that situation where you want to cry at work and you got to go make it to the room closet. <laughs> uh, do you want to hear the real story of the Parker divorce? Sure. Um, Eileen Parker did file for divorce from Mike while he was on that tour, and he was surprised by it. But that letter, there was no letter of evidence. There's no waitress. According to the sources I read, Mike insisted that he resign rather than Philip asking him for his resignation. Philip wanted to hold off, as did Elizabeth until they got to shore. But Mike was insistent. And so he did leave the ship. And when he got back to London, the royal press secretary greeted him and said, you're on your own, buddy. I'm not going to spin anything for you. And he continued to go to the palace for about a month afterwards before his resignation was accepted by Philip and Elizabeth. That was according to the sources that I read. And as a matter of fact, so you saw him with the little penguinos. At that point in real life, Mike had already tendered his resignation to Philip. 
Mm-hmm. While they were cavorting, that was already in the air. Timing wise, you know, you're looking at a man who has officially resigned his duties as far as he's concerned, although Philip didn't accept the terms until much later. Right. And Eileen got hate mail accusing her of setting the whole thing up to make Mike look worse than he was. She was not a very liked person, but it was granted the following year on the grounds of adultery. That particular act was not the one when he was on tour. It was one in London six months after he had resigned. And it seems like one of those setup deals where it's like, oh, no. I found him with a woman in a hotel because someone was passing at the right time. It sounded an awful lot like Wallace Simpson's. We talked about this in Wallace Simpson. Same thing, you know, the time they had to be apart, the setup, adultery, just for the court and done. So back to the show. Humiliated, Mike gets kicked off the ship in Gibraltar and he is met by a whole bunch of press yelling, 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 did the Duke fire you, sir? And things like that. And Philip watches him go from on deck. And Philip, at least character Philip, is pretty upset. I mean, this is his friend. And I'm not sure, actually, if the show intends for you to think that it was even Philip's wish to make him resign. Do you think? I think I'm taking from this that that's what was in the telegram. Oh, that he had to make him resign. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Plus, because he was being told to make him resign, he knew the level of trouble he was about to get into. Mm -hmm. When Mike Parker is coming down the gangplank, he looks over at the crowd. He's wearing a regular suit, although he hasn't taken off his beard yet. (laughs) He sees the um, press all being held back by a fence, and it's the only way out. He knows he has to go right through them. And for a second, I I felt bad for him. Then I realized it kind of reminded me of um, on The Walking Dead, when someone knows that they're going to get eaten by the zombies and they just have to go for it, you know, maybe they can get through. They, it's a Hail Mary. They know they have to do it. And the zombies swarm them. That's exactly what happened to Mike oh, Parker no. in this scene. The zombie press swarmed him. <laughs> he doesn't comment, though. Philip had advised him that his response should always be no comment. And he seems to be taking that to heart and not saying anything. So... <laughs> So there's that. Now back at the palace, Tommy Lassels has been called in again to deliver some more bad news, which I think he likes (laughs) (laughs) to Queen Mum and Queen Elizabeth. Uh, So there are stories in the foreign press about Philip. He just recites one after the other different stories. He had all these headlines memorized Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he just kept spitting them off one after another after another to tell them, you know, this is not good worldwide. It is around. And there's no escaping it. So uh, Baltimore, Philip has evidently been seeing another woman for a long time. Manchester, this is like Wallace Simpson level interest. The Sunday pictorial, this family is loved throughout the world simply because it is a family, implying support is waning. Time magazine, too much Thursdaying. Uh, Adine, by the way, could never, never, ever have pulled off not only that list of things, but the dispassionate nature with which he says some very troublesome things. <laughs> um, there is a sound of a clock throughout, by the way, to add a little, um, I don't know. It's good to add tension. I don't know if I could live in a house with a clock that loud. But uh, Tommy, by the way, is also a master manipulator. He handles people's minds, I think. So <laughs> they think his plan is their idea. The queen mom says, this is her idea. We need to bring Philip back immediately. And he He's so good at this. He is so good at this. He acknowledges that is one way to go, ma'am. A very good idea. In addition, playing devil's advocate, we might say, blah, blah, blah. And I would like your input on this. 
uh, Adin, blah, blah, blah. And he like totally brings everyone on board with his strategy. He advises against it because it would look bad. It would look like he was being scolded and recalled at the palace's insistence. And it would really kind of point to his guilt, like give credence to the reports. Mm -hmm. And it would give the press power because they'd be like, oh, we demanded it and it happened. How about that? And so there's a big pause and nobody wants to ask what the plan is until finally (laughs) Elizabeth breaks the silence and says, what? So we go to the boat. Philip is summoned to see the Admiral. And this is very interesting to me because in any of these scenarios where rank is involved, the lower ranking person has to be the one to travel to his superior for a conversation. So it is obvious to me now that the Admiral thinks Philip is no longer his superior or in fact, even an equal. He's no longer the representative of the crown on the royal yacht. He's something less, nothing maybe even, because he has seen the text of the telegrams and he has received, quote, instructions for Philip from the real representative of the crown back in London. And even that was a slam to Philip because Philip's like, you got this information and I didn't. And the admiral just hands him the letter and says, this is what you're going to have to do. And everyone knows, like the valet knows when delivering that message, what that means. It means your status has officially been diminished. So the valet knows, Philip knows because he swims in that water. The admiral knows and is kind of gleeful about it, actually. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because after that conversation they had in the last episode where, you know, they had to one up each other and then Philip won as a representative of the royal family. So now he gets to win. Well, evidently those, quote, instructions required a clean close shave because Philip is taking the beard off. <laughs> yeah, he's standing in front of a mirror, his mirror in his cabin. There's a steaming basin of water on his vanity. He has a very manly styled uh, shaving kit assembled. And we watch him shave off his beard, the brush in the soap, the whole thing. They show this basin with the hair in it, and then he splashes the water on his face at the end from the same basin, but there doesn't look like there's a lot of hair floating around in it. So that kind of had me out of the scene for just a second. I'm like, ooh, all that hair, gross. (laughs) Well, maybe the prop guy was super good at the beginning, like, oh, no, because there'd be a lot of hair. And then they're realizing, oh, that would be kind of gross. And so they like replaced, like they had stunt water. Stunt water, yeah. (laughs) All right. So anyway, Philip is having to get dressed. And I don't know if this is a new valet exactly or a man who is anxiously trying to follow some really bizarre instructions because he is really, really referring to a sheet of paper. He gives Philip a tie. (laughs) Philip objects to his whole outfit. The tie has hearts on it. (laughs) And Philip (laughs) says, I need a tie for an adult. (laughs) And the valet, he's like, no, you have to have this. It's it's required. That's what you have to wear. And you have to wear a hat. And Philip's like, I hate hats. And he says, no, it's not the wearing of the hat, sir. It's the removing of it. And you see Philip's face and he's like, oh, I see. When I get on the plane and the valet has the letter in his hands, he's reading and he says, before you reach the stairs of the aircraft. So he has prop work to memorize. In addition to wardrobe, there is actually blocking that is happening. (laughs) So talk about instructions, man. For a guy that does not like to be micromanaged, well, Chachi, you got the micromanagement now and it's your own fault. (laughs) Well, Philip arrives to meet Queen Elizabeth's plane. The press is kept away a little bit, but he arrives. He does look dumb in the hat, just like he said he would. (laughs) 
And Michael Aideen anxiously reminds him to take off the hat. Sir, at the bottom of the stairs. So it is serious. Everybody is taking this hat thing very seriously. Well, it was in the instructions. They were very specific. And in real life, during this particular um, episode of their lives, because it did happen, he was wearing a heart tie, except it was reversed. It wasn't baby blue with pink hearts. It was um, a lighter color with dark hearts on it. But (laughs) he was wearing a heart tie during this time. Well, then there is a cold reunion inside of that airplane. Oh, so very. He walks on and he's got this look on his face like, well, I'm here. And he's smiling like he's hoping maybe she's going to be happy to see him. And she's dealing with all of her people. And she kind of looks over at him and they just have this eye conversation. Philip's eyes say, what's your deal? And her eyes say, I'm pissed. And he says, what? And her eyes say, freaking pissed. But that's not what she says at all out loud she says we'll talk about it later and she turns away from his kiss yeah no smooch for you she actually avoids it we oh and like everyone sees everyone sees and adine is so uncomfortable that is his ground state these days yeah (laughs) he's like sheepish and oh my life so yeah that's embarrassing any hope philip had for some kind of loving reunion dashed. You know, all of the mental growth he's had over the past few months might as well never have happened for all of the warmth that they now have as a married couple. You know, we had hope during the Daddy's Penguins episode that there was going to be a happy reunion. And if all of this letter controversy stuff hadn't happened, I could foresee that that would have been a glorious reunion. And it may have been because the real pictures of this particular reunion of them getting off the plane in Lisbon, they both look kind of flirty at each other. But it just looked a little too real in the real pictures, whereas here they have their fake smiles on and she gives the wave and they walk down the stairs to the reporters. But in the real pictures, and we'll put this on their show notes um, they looked happier. Yeah, I am a little bit concernicus. I know that's not a real word. Uh, yeah, about how good or how creepy Claire Foy's fake happiness is. She's in the car waving and smiling and Prince Philip cannot even muster a fake smile. He is in shock, I think, at the horrible stew his life has just now become. Uh-huh. He doesn't know what to expect. He can only imagine it's going to be upsetting and uncomfortable the rest Uh of his life, (laughs) I think. And here she is perfectly happy about waving and smiling. And I find that kind of creepy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) She is such a good actress. And I, I don't know if I'm the only person that feels this way, but I don't really appreciate how good of an actress or actor someone is until I hear the real them talking. You know, she doesn't have that um, royal affected accent. She doesn't carry herself like the queen at all. She's very relaxed and modern and nothing like Queen Elizabeth in real life. So she embraced this role so well. Yay. I'm sorry to see her go. I know. So now we have a full rerun of the cold open from episode one of this season and it is now fitted into its proper place chronologically i just thought that was a very interesting choice no further commentary they just re-roll the thing we've already seen but now we understand more so clever because at the beginning you're like what 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 and now you're like oh yeah man oh and the only differences i saw were now when the reporters are yelling we now hear things like 
The royal couple are hiding from the public eye and the royal yacht in which they have sought refuge. So we didn't hear those kind of comments from the reporters before screaming on the dock. Mm -hmm. And also when Claire Foy says the measures we have taken are not effective, I guess we're now like the hat and the tie. Those sad measures. (laughs) Well, and getting rid of Mike Parker and um, orchestrating this entire reunion, I guess. And just not acknowledging it to the press. I I don't know. I don't think they say in this episode, but in real life, the royal couple did issue a statement saying that their marriage was perfectly fine. And now we, the audience, understand a little bit more about her comment where she says, I've learned more about humiliation in the past few weeks than I'd ever hoped to in my entire life. So now we understand that, whereas we didn't the first time we saw it. Mm -hmm. And she even says the monarchy is too fragile. You tell me that. One more scandal and it's over. So we have that kind of stake going on, too. Elizabeth believes that she may, in fact, be the last monarch of England if she does not take care of situations like this. That's a big legacy to have failed. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not only her marriage, but like the life of all history in England (laughs) is writing on this conversation they're having. And she's wearing that really bad pink dress again. At the end of the scene, there's talk about what is your price? Like, what will it take to get you to come back since divorce is not an option for us? Basically, I need something to give you so that you play nice, that you are part of the deal since it can't be divorce and you can't be free. So what else? Well, he wants respect from who he calls the mustaches. And she says, you earn respect. And he's like, no, 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 no. Now, see, we get his price. Now, we didn't the last time this was played. I will earn their respect with the only thing those creatures understand. And he complains that he is now outranked by his eight-year-old son. And her first thing out of her mouth is, well, he's the heir. And his face was like, yeah, bingo. And I think she got it right then and there. It's like, oh, you're just like a side item. You're just an accessory around here and you're feeling like it. And he says, I am his father, Elizabeth. So, hmm, whatever could his request be, his price. So then we go to a ceremony where Queen Elizabeth gives Philip a new title. Maybe that's his price. His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. And it is an official ceremony. It is so full of pomp. (laughs) And the room is full of people wearing their finest duds. It's a very somber occasion, which is interesting because you would think it would be joyous, right? I just don't know. I don't know if everyone is taking this as a scolding. I just don't know. Everyone seems like they have to be there out of respect. Um, Man, this is a very sashed and beribboned and medallioned crowd. So this is an extraordinarily high-ranking crowd. Here is a wrinkle. I want everyone to get this. Evidently, you cannot be a prince or princess first name in England unless you were born so, if that makes sense. So (laughs) Kate Middleton is not and will never be Princess Catherine. Guess what else? Princess Diana is not Princess Diana either. Princess plus first name equals you had it at birth. Diana married Charles, Prince Charles, when he was the Prince of Wales. So she was Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Wales, which is a whole other thing. But she was never Princess Diana. But Philip's name at birth was Philip, Prince of Greece and Denmark. His father was a prince. His mother was a princess. He was directly descended from two royal houses, which is one more than Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) Because the Queen Mama was actually, quote, only an Earl's daughter. So you and I think Earl's daughter, that's pretty high. No, evidently that's still considered a commoner. (laughs) Ha ha, I didn't know that. (laughs) So um, 
He renounced his title in season one, if you remember. So he's really, by this ceremony, just getting his birth name back, if you think about it, his birth status back. A status people really do respond to. I mean, rank is very important to these people. And it's not like he wasn't entitled to the title. <laughs> entitled to the title. Surely no one can really object. He is a descendant of Queen Victoria. His mother was born in Windsor Castle. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. So what they're doing here is just putting back what old papa had put asunder. And also here is a cynical reading of this whole thing. I read that a prince cannot be subpoenaed to testify in court, i.e. a divorce case, whereas a duke can. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that is not what the motivation was, but it certainly couldn't have hurt. Yeah, it's in several articles that I read. They pointed that out. So they didn't actually say this is why, but it was implied, I guess, that this could be a mitigating factor. And that would also, you know, give testimony to why nobody in the place looked happy. This situation, this ceremony was happening because of all this drama that happened in their family. And this is just another part of that terrible situation. But he looks really miserable during the ceremony. She puts on his new sword. She has to like dress him in his princely duds. He gets a new sword. He gets a ring. He gets a scepter. He gets a red cloak. And he's just looking awkward and unhappy the whole time. It almost seems like he's ashamed of wanting this. But he's really right. It will affect how he's treated. I'm sorry to say. So regalia, regalia. He receives the highest ranking coronet in the panoply of coronets. And I normally don't like referring to Wikipedia, but they do have a great series of illustrations about the different coronets of Britain. I am particularly fond of the Earl's coronet. I think it looks the prettiest. <laughs> so um, we will link you to those pictures. And I tried, I tried to look up the red cape and the history of the red cape, but you can forget it. You know why? Because the prince in Sleeping Beauty is a Prince Philip who wears a red cape. And I just couldn't dig far enough down. <laughs> That's funny. So I did try. I did try. Queen Elizabeth is wearing, um, she's looking lovely in this pink strapless dress and her sash with all of her bling on it. And she's wearing a tiara that I think I misidentified as the Queen Mary's fringe. But in reality, it's what? I would bet $5 that this is Queen Alexandra's Kokoshnik. It has 400 diamonds. It is serious. It is the most massive, most impressive tiara in the bunch, I believe. And Queen Alexandra had had it made to um, resemble those of her relatives in Russia. It is a recreation in diamonds of a headdress worn by Russian noblewomen. Um, and man, it is just one solid wall of shine. <laughs> yeah, it does. It looks like a wall, like around a fortress. It's just these posts of diamonds really closely set together. On the show notes, we'll give you a link to all of her tiaras um, at the Royal Jeweler. We will reference them in every one of these episodes, I think, because they do such a great job of tying everything to the royal family and showing you exactly what she's wearing and when. So it's a great sight. So they do meet eyes. And then she sits, and then after her, he sits on her left, and the camera zooms in, and there is just silence, like polite silence, but silence. And Philip is, his eyes are darting around, kind of looking to see if this has had any effect, almost. And, you know, like I said, everyone there is sashed and meddled and becaped, and he now outranks everybody in this room 
but Elizabeth, because they didn't talk about this in the show. But in addition to the coronet and the title, he received, quote, place, preeminence, and precedence next to Her Majesty during her reign. Also, if Charles came to the throne, like if Elizabeth died while Charles was still a minor, Philip, not her sister Margaret, would now be the regent. So he also outranks his eight-year-old son now until Queen Elizabeth's death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he could never be king. And it's just that's just part of the rules. If it had been, Albert would have been king back in Victoria's age because she was pretty fond of him. But he was still Prince Albert. So the photographer, Cecil Beaton, is doing the official portrait of Philip and evidently is doing it with appropriate quotations for his photo subject. So this <laughs> time he has a military quote. It's Tennyson's ode on the death of the Duke of Wellington, um, which is long, 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 long. Um, not Eaton language because Cecil Beaton went to Harrow. <laughs> we'll see later that Cecil Beaton has a vast repertoire of appropriate quotations to get his sitter in the mood. Um, those are in future episodes. Let's just say he tailors his pep talk directly to the mood he wishes to evoke from his subject, which is kind of smart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's mood poetry. And we saw him once before at the very end of season one. He's the photographer that's taking Elizabeth's portrait and he's doing the same thing. And when he did it then, it was like annoying. I'm like, oh, my God, why do you guys have this guy? But now he's kind of growing on me. He's like such a fun character just so different you know he's just very dramatically reading the poetry out of his brain trying to get the reaction that he's looking for so the queen has a special request for Hedine. she takes him to the side and asks if he has a moment <laughs> what could that request be <laughs> we see a portrait of a man with a mustache right next to Aideen with his mustache, but only for just a few more minutes because he's shaving. He has to shave off his mustache. That's what she asked him to do. He looks sort of unhappily at himself in the mirror. <laughs> I also dare Elizabeth to try to get Tommy Lassels to do it. Double dog dare. <laughs> well, he doesn't technically work there anymore, so she has no power over him. Oh, Other... that's an easy out. She would <laughs> No. Well, I think this whole thing was very thoughtful of her, though, at least toward her husband, not toward Adine. <laughs> um, and I do wonder, and I wish we had seen what Philip thought when he saw Adine for the first time with no mustache, because he has to know who did it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hope he wasn't as miserable looking as he was when he was sitting on the throne. Well, I mean, that's not the way you want to get honors, right? You don't want to twist somebody's arm, especially your own wife's arm. He got that title as part of a public scandal. And so it's really not at all the way that you want to get it. But honestly, once you have it, the it end, does. everyone has to obey you and respect mm -hmm. you. So mm -hmm. so Philip pulls up in his car to the Parker's house and then Mike and Philip are hanging out both in the wrecked up kitchen and in their freezing cold living room. <laughs> the last time we were in this kitchen was with Eileen and Elizabeth having their Malta talk. Um, and it was very tidy. It was a tidy kitchen. She kept it nice and clean. And now they have it lit really dark and it's scuzzy. There's stuff all over the counters. There's grunge on the stove. The sink is full of dishes. She's nowhere to be found. Obviously, she's moved out and he doesn't keep a very tidy house. Well, I guess in his defense, it is the 1950s and I don't think men actually set foot in the kitchen. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of uh, have this little banter going on. And Philip is complaining about the temperature in the house. He says, you could have at least put a fire on. And Mike says, 
look, I provided you whiskey. I burnt you some sausages. What do you think you are? Royalty? <laughs> well, Mike informs Philip that he is moving back home. Home to the military? Says Philip, no, home. Australia home. <laughs> uh, it's over. So then... During this conversation, also, Philip shares with his friend, Mike Parker, men are amazing, aren't they? They're back to being friends. He shares that Queen Elizabeth wants more children and that he is reluctant. And I think it is so odd that Mike Parker has strong opinions about Elizabeth's parenting. He calls her cold toward Charles, but does he even see his own children? (laughs) Yeah, it's very ironic that he's giving parenting advice to Philip, who's actually involved in his kids' lives, but Philip's listening. Mike thinks it's probably a good idea for her to have a third child because then she can have a kid who can just be a kid and isn't a mortal threat, meaning that Charles is going to take her place when she dies. So her death means he's going to advance. I think that is not correct because if you think about it, yes, Charles is maybe a reminder of her mortality, like he says, like her doom or something. But I think that you would actually find it quite comforting that you have assured that history will continue, that your beloved son out of your beloved body is going to take up the mantle after mantle with an L-E, by the way. (laughs) Yes, if you have a fireplace, it is E-L. Let's all get on board. So, um, I think that she does not believe Charles is her doom, and that is not why she treats him coldly. I think it is just she's busy and can't balance. Mm -hmm. I don't think it has to do with eight-year-old Charles walking around like a grim reaper. Either way, that's a little window into Mike Parker's cynical soul, I guess. But Philip does not agree, by the way, with that characterization. He doesn't. He says she does. she's doing the best she can. So at least he's back on board with his wife, right? And I have to tell you, Philip is right. To be concerned about having more children, if you have a troubled marriage, bringing more children in is probably not exactly the glue you want to cement it together. If the marriage is already shaky, if you add more elements to it... Maybe you should iron some things out first. Well, evidently, Elizabeth says, I want to think of it as a second act, kind of for everything. Um, Philip himself is going to start over again. Seems like his whole life has been starting over again. He's had a lot of practice. But Mike Parker was part of the old life, and it is time to find a new one. And they show us that literally. The doorbell rings. And it's the airport driver. You see that Mike's suitcases are packed. He meant he's going to Australia right then, that day. I was very surprised by that. Me too. I was more surprised that he was going to leave the house looking like it did. Like, I didn't like him as a character anyway, but this just was the worst. It just made it even another level of disgust. (laughs) He's going to leave the house looking like that. Well, maybe Mrs. Parker's moving back in. Maybe. Maybe he paid someone to come clean it. I don't know. But the two of them kind of say their goodbyes and that it's an end of an era. He says, thank you for that era, sir. Philip says, Philip. And Mike Parker looks at him and says, sir, like, let's start now with a new era. <laughs> and Philip understands. And we close the curtain. Yeah, that's the end of the episode. So that's it. where has this episode left us? So Philip has obviously got an act two coming. He's got to find something to do, like a purpose, or he is going to go crazy again. If his reckless era is over, what is the new era's theme? Right. I'm interested to see also, does the title make a difference with the way he's treated? Or, in fact, more critically, 
the way he sees himself, which could also improve his treatment. So the Queen Elizabeth versus Macmillan thing is not the cozy relationship we've seen so far with prime ministers. Even Anthony Eden, she had a little heart for, right? Uh-huh. I don't think this one's going to go as smoothly. Also, she is willing to speak her mind more now. I think the women are, you know, Eileen was willing to speak her mind in this episode. She got her backbone and she just said what she thought. She acted like a man would act at the time. I don't right. mean to say it like that, but, and Elizabeth is doing the same thing. So it's really kind of a theme for this episode was women power. You know, they were both able to stand up against these people that are trying to do things that they don't want to do. Also, here's a societal change that has come about. Queen Elizabeth is now vulnerable to the press because they are not as deferential as before. I mean, in season one, they had a little fight and she came out and looked beseechingly at a guy that ripped the film out of his camera to not embarrass her or have negative things come out. Well, (laughs) that genie's out of the bottle because the press does not care and they want dirt and they want conflict and they want scandal and they are willing to dig for it. So... That whole um, pressure she's put on herself about the monarchy being one step from going away is not going to be helped by that relationship with the press. Uh, Also, more kids are coming. We know that from history, (laughs) but also from the whole discussion. But, you know, we know. And let's see. I think that's all of the future tracks that I'm going to be following as the show goes forward. So as to favorite outfits and non-favorite outfits, I've already talked about it. I hate Mrs. Parker's baby poop green pickle and mustard outfit. Well, my favorite outfit, I gushed about it before, was her traveling coat, that blue swing coat. I love that. I want one. (laughs) And as to good outfits, really, uh, you know, I cannot stand almost anything that Queen Elizabeth wears. Occasionally, she'll have a cute cardigan or a cute blouse. So the Kakoshnik tiara, I guess, is what I'm going to go with as my favorite outfit. (laughs) It's always wise. Go for the bling. So as to links, I have a BBC article about conscripts in the Suez conflict and why, in fact, men might have been attacking Anthony Eden at the train station. You can watch a video of the Antarctica visit um, from British Pathé. It includes the penguins at the end. So, you know, hold on till the end. Um, And the narrator also says, Mike Parker's certainly been in the news. Yeah, so it's open knowledge even during Penguin time that Mike Parker is... uh, Lord Dirtbag? Yes. (laughs) The Duke and his friend Edward Seago's paintings of each other. Got a link to that. Also, the illustrations of the coronets and some information about Queen Alexandra's Kokoshnik. And I'll also link you to the whole list of tiaras. There is a YouTube video of that Lisbon greeting that he's wearing the heart tie, the real thing. So we'll put that on the show notes. I found this really cool side-by-side comparison of the characters in this show and the actual historical event where there was video footage of it. They put it side-by-side and I'll put a link to that um, on the show notes too because it was kind of, they do such a good job making the characters look like the people they're portraying. So you can see them side-by-side. It really hits you. And so that's it for The Crown, Season 2, Episode 3, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Do you know anyone who watches The Crown? Spread the word about the recapery, won't you, and tell a few friends. Also, we've got a Pinterest board set up at The Recapery for Season 2. If you'd like even more rabbit holes to travel down, just head on over there. And most importantly, don't miss our original podcast, The History Chicks, where we tell you the stories of women throughout history as only we can. 
See you next time. I am just reminded of the, um, what is it called? Pornography for the new mother, where it's like Ryan Gosling or somebody with no shirt on that says, hey, girl, I just unloaded the dishwasher. (laughs) Yes, exactly (laughs) like that.